Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dr. Andy Wilczek. This week, I'm talking with Lorna Ferguson, who is a PhD student in the sociology department at the University of Western Ontario, and is also the director of operations for the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing. This is episode 25 of Untenured Tracks. persons in Canada and so I've been doing a lot of research related to that obviously lately mm-hmm. and one of the things that I'm really stoked about is a paper that got recently accepted to policing an international journal um, that I co-authored with Dr. Laura Huey and Larissa Kowalski mm-hmm. and you know the paper is applying uh, crime concentration theory to missing persons reports and in it we found that missing persons reports also typically cluster in um you know among particular spaces and among particular people so you know it was really neat because we got to see how you know criminology can help out with missing persons work mm-hmm. and you know it will help with developing some targeted prevention measures specific to locations and, and people in missing persons work for police mm-hmm. and i'm pretty pumped about it because it's not been done before so yeah it's it's, it's exciting work <clears throat> um so how did you get into that as like a topic uh, into missing persons. Yeah. Or yeah. So missing persons in Canada has, you know, generated a lot of interest lately because of some big kind of news stories that have hit. Um, there's a big one out in BC, and then there's a big story out in Ontario. So um, when they were faced with these issues or these cases, they came to like know that there's literally no research on it. Mm-hmm. It's chronically understudied and chronically underfunded, and so. Um, when I started my PhD work, my supervisor was like, hey, here's a neat topic that you can get involved in. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that sounds amazing. And <clears throat> my interest when I entered into graduate school was really studying some type of topic related to vulnerable populations, you mm-hmm. know, and missing persons largely intersects with a lot of vulnerable populations like mm-hmm. the LGBTQ2S plus community and the homeless community and, you know, mm-hmm. those that live transient lifestyles. So. I think it's important that, you know, my research does touch on those populations and it kind of just came to fruition that way, which is super exciting. Yeah. And I think we, we would have to also, um, I don't want to say shout out that seems too tacky, but just make mention of missing and murdered indigenous women too. Cause that's been exactly. a, a, a yeah. huge, like, I don't want to say research area, but like, it's, it's a topic that's come up a lot. Um, in, at least in North America. Right. Oh, absolutely, yeah, and that's one of the the issues that we're having is, like, it's such a a key issue, Mm -hmm. Um, but, like, there's no research on it, there's no one, um, you know, coming up with key areas for prevention or intervention, and we're kind of scrambling at this stage, trying to figure out what we're going to do about it, because it's, it's just terrible, it's a really, really, you know, it's like a crisis situation almost what's happening and so exactly it's a another vulnerable population Mm -hmm. that really needs attention um given to it 
So, um, how do I want to ask this? So, how do you like? You said that this was something that there's no research on at all, right? Like it's mm-hmm. it's completely mm-hmm. wide open. So, how do you how do you start doing research in an area where nobody's done anything before, where you don't really have like like you know the cliche of like standing on the shoulders of giants? Like you don't have you're the giants. <laughs> you yeah, know? it's definitely a challenge. <laughs> I would be lying if I said I haven't faced barriers with that, but. Through the organization I volunteer with, which is the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing, mm-hmm. I've been really, really privileged to partner with a number of police services and police officers mm-hmm. that have, you know, spent their time educating me on the matter and have provided me with data and have walked me through what they do and how they're thinking about missing persons work. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that, you know, I have to give them a shout out for giving me this access to mm-hmm. both their work, their time, their efforts, and, you know, what they're doing. And um, obviously give <laughs> give Canseb a shout out for, for giving me those connections. And part of it is drawing upon, you know, connections in other work that has been done related to, let's say, risk risk populations or risk literature or crime theories or sociological theories and seeing how I can really carve a pathway out. Um, and, you know, you know, there's been a lot of research in the United Kingdom that have been, that has been really helpful. And as well as the Australia, um, not the Australia, sorry, as well as Australia. So um, <laughs> these two, two areas that are doing all this work have kind of carved that pathway in their specific locations. Mm-hmm. And I'm trying to follow suit in Canada. So, you know, it's really about relying on the people that have the knowledge and the experience and then again relying on the people that have generated research in other areas. And so yeah, I feel like I've been very lucky so far. Mm-hmm. Like obviously there has been there has been barriers that have had some resistance, but for the most part, um, everyone's been really, really freaking nice <laughs> and really helpful. And um I again, like I said, I feel lucky for that. That's awesome. Um mm-hmm. So could you tell me a little bit more about the um, the evidence-based policing um, volunteer work that you're doing? Sure. So the Canadian Society of Evidence-Based Policing, um, you know, our mandate is empowering the use um, of evidence-based policing or evidence-based practices in policing. Mm-hmm. And what we really do is try to start a network for people to connect through and then along with create tools, so like educational tools, to empower that use. And so we're an entire, we're a volunteer-based organization, so we're all volunteers that are in this, and, um, you know, we've partnered with several police services, and we're generating products and projects with with these services Mm -hmm. to empower the use of evidence-based practices, and it's pretty neat. Um, It's kind of like a new movement, I guess you could say. It's a new evolution Mm -hmm. that's going on in policing right now to start looking at science and looking at research and the practices, and... I've kind of came along at a pivotal point and I've been very fortunate to do this work with them. <clears throat> yeah. I, I think the evidence-based policing stuff and evidence-based practice is really fascinating, right? Because I, I think a lot of students kind of expect that it's already there. Yeah. <laughs> and, you think, yeah. Well, it's good like nature to us because we're researchers. We're like, Oh, yeah. science. Yeah. N- <laughs> no way. But like, um, you know, in other domains and other fields, it's not really second nature. And that's kind of where we come in is we try to educate and empower the use of these practices and science and their work. And, you know, it really helps with several issues that have been faced by policing lately. So, yeah. And try to discourage people from making decisions solely based on their gut instinct. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Consider the research first. That's what we're always saying, for sure. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering how... 
like again, how do I want to ask this? I, have there been any cases like as you're doing your research on on missing people? Um, have you found yourself like drawn to particular cases like specifically that you have a hard time letting go of, or is that not a a thing that you worry about? Or yeah, so I'm pretty early on, so I'm in my first year of my PhD, so I have a lot of work to do yeah. and a long road ahead of me, but mm-hmm. what I'm really, really interested in is risk, and there's been a lot of risk literature um, for missing persons work in different areas by different people in different locations, mm-hmm. and I'm really intrigued by the notion of con- what constitutes a person at risk for going missing, because it's kind of like a fixed identity that we look at, like let's say if you have an indigenous identity you're at risk for going missing mm-hmm. and i don't really know if um i don't really know if that makes sense to me yet and i'm trying to piece together different theories and different ways of looking at it um to kind of construct maybe like a pathway to risk or you know yeah so looking looking at it different than a fixed category in time and space i'm trying to uh-huh. think about it as something that's you know causal pathways or different ways that you can come to risk or being at risk and so uh, it's not really particular cases that i'm looking at but it's particular avenues for or mechanisms behind or processes arriving at like the going missing phenomenon if that makes sense no i mean it sounds like they talk about risk as like it's a health condition am i understanding you correctly like i am you know i'm at risk for whatever diseases right just but just mm-hmm. by like basis of being indigenous or being a woman or being impoverished you're then at risk of going missing that seems really cynical i know and you know like what does what does that mean like as a researcher when i say things like that what does that mean what are the implications of that and and can we really say things like that based on you know inductive analysis and data-driven results and i think that um, the work that's been done in missing persons right now is really um, preliminary and exploratory, and there's nothing wrong with that. We yeah. need that right now, but well, I'd really like it. I'd, I'd really like to take it to the next step and see what um, you know, other connections we can make and what other information we can drive up here. Yeah, I mean, it, it just it seems so <sighs> sad <laughs> to, yeah. to frame it, it that way. Like, yeah. like I don't think you would apply that to other types of victimization, would you? Well, there has been, like, risk literature exists across, you know, across yeah. disciplines. Like, most recently I read um, an article about risk pathways to PTSD. Uh-huh. And the author's argument was essentially, you know, some people like, have PTSD after some traumatic events or after some situational effects or blah, blah, blah. You know, there's several factors that go into what constitutes someone at risk for going missing for PTSD PTSD and instead of saying, you know, these specific factors make you at risk, what they did is come up with pathways of risk. Mm-hmm. And I was really, really interested in that because it makes it kinda makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like it makes common sense to me that it's not just one static category or static identity that one person has that puts them at risk, but there's several things mm-hmm. and several ways to arrive at this risk level does that make sense yeah yeah i mean just like with any any other type of theoretical explanation of crime right like i i was trained primarily as a life course theorist and so that's all you know everybody gets to come to the party right theoretically from there and so it's like a lot of boxes that you check off that put you at risk to be at that point where you make a uh or you become involved in some kind of criminal activity so i guess with this like I mean, when I've taught victimology before, it like we covered risk 
a lot and mm-hmm. i i approached it with the students as like here are boxes to tick off right yeah exactly. uh, heavy alcohol use um poverty etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah and it's i think that when we start looking at it differently and looking at it in this way we can kind of understand the processes behind going missing instead of like I said, looking at it in one specific location or time or space, we can start to look at it, you know, more broadly and more at like that meso macro level. And that can really help with intervention tactics, prevention tactics, and reducing these incidents, um, hopefully, you know, longer term instead of in the, in the short term. Uh-huh. Um, does any, does any of your work or any of your, your research that you see moving forward, um, do you expect to talk to or like study the families of people who have gone missing at all? I would love to, yeah. There's some really good work by um, a couple of key scholars and missing persons that are starting to look at what they call return home interviews. Mm-hmm. So when the person is located and they're returned home, they're starting to interview the families and the person that was reported as missing to see, you know, what triggered the incident, what happened during it and what happened afterwards. And, you know, start to look at ways that we can help with this. And mm-hmm. out of that research, we're finding that social support is extremely important. Social support after the fact and even before the missing episode. And so <clears throat> looking at the families is going to be extremely important as like mediators or buffers to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's hard to say concretely but i would say that the family would even act as um a resource to stop a missing episode if that makes sense Mm -hmm. so definitely um i don't know where my research is really going to take me as of right now i'm I'm excited about that it's nice to be in that kind of you know land of wherever the road goes Uh and whatever happens um yeah but I definitely see some key connections to the family uh-huh. and how that can help with uh, missing persons for sure. Yeah. I mean, I asked because, um, I, I developed a class on like major cases, um, mm-hmm. and I wanted to familiarize with my stuff and I got, I got interested, um, because none of my education, like we were never trained on anything that happens North of the United States. Right. right. <laughs> it's kind of how an American education goes or the center of the universe. Um, and so there is this <laughs> podcast called someone knows something. Have you ever heard of it? I haven't. No. Um, so he is an investigative reporter, um, who, um, at least a couple of seasons of the show are about missing people. Um, mm-hmm. and the two that I listened to were cases in Canada. Um, cause I just had, I had no experience um, with how the Canadian justice system works, and it was just interesting kind of peak. Um, but I would I would definitely suggest checking it out because he spends a lot of time in both stories um, with families of the people who went missing, of the girls who went missing, and it's oh, that's really cool. it's yeah, it's really interesting. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, super sad mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. because you see how like destroyed they were. Um, mm-hmm. because I think in one of these, I think it happened in the eighties sometimes. So it's, it's been decades. Um, but I think from like a criminological aspect, it's really interesting because you can see how like this vicarious victimization has like long shockwaves, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And not even <clears throat> just for families, but like local communities. And sometimes yeah. there's, there's research, a little bit of research on, um, that like if people go missing from institutional locations, uh-huh. families, friends, and the community start to lose faith in those, those locations and yeah. the social spheres and the police and like, yeah, the ramifications are very, very broad. Mm-hmm. Um, and not really 
they're not really explored yet and that's kind of <laughs> it's kind of the problem right so um i mean obviously like i said i'd hope to to get there uh-huh. um there's just so much to do like, yeah really <laughs> <laughs> yep. but, you know, we'll see how it goes i i understand <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and I think everybody listening to this understands too. We feel your pain. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like I want to take on the world, and um, there's definitely I've, I've connected with a couple of other researchers in Canada that are starting to study missing persons from different areas, like uh, from a public health perspective or from an aging perspective. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that you know I can connect more with them and see if we can maybe collaborate because. Like I said, I feel like, the, you know, there's only one little me and I'd like to do so much, but <laughs> I have to know my limitations here. Um, and teamwork really makes the dream work. So hopefully yeah. we'll see what happens there. Well, hopefully somebody listening to this can help you out. Um, That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's a strange thing that I think is, is like an unexpected side effect of this project for me is that we have developed like a community so every yeah. every new interview is like we're bringing somebody new onto the island i love it we need it, we need it. we're right here alone swimming by ourselves oh so i know it's, it's yeah this is a very isolating career path so welcome <laughs> um so i was wondering um this might be a really stupid question but uh are there like different myths that you've encountered about why people go missing there's lots. Okay. Um, I think it's mostly to do with like a lack of education and kind of like what's depicted in the movies. Uh-huh. For example, movies like to sensationalize missing persons as always ending up, you know, a missing body turning up in the water's edge, you know, uh-huh. decomposing or missing persons like violent, violent, violent cases. And, you know, that's really not what we found in the research. We found that most people return of their own volition they just end up coming back home or they really aren't missing they were just at their friend's house or you know they just didn't come back to their location in time for curfew um so it's really not that exciting it's more mundane (laughs) which is hard to like it's yeah it's hard to make people understand um another thing that we really like to talk about is that wait 24 to 40 hours to report a person is missing that's like a terrible terrible myth that's out there because Timing is extremely important in these cases, and that time delay can really impact, you know, how quickly a person is located and their state when they are located. So Mm -hmm. that is not true. (laughs) Just for anyone listening, (laughs) if someone goes missing, report them as soon as you have awareness of that and get all the information that you can provide right to the to the dispatch, to the officer that you're, you know, is taking the report. It's super, super important for these cases that time is considered. Um, but yeah, there's, yeah. So for me, squashing those myths, myths is going to be important. Um, just because the the cases aren't, you know, maybe exciting and murderous and, uh, you know, mysterious doesn't mean that they're any less important. These mundane, mundane cases bring out a lot of information about missing persons work. So, um, yeah, I wish, (laughs) you know, TV is great. It's great. It's super fun. Uh, but yeah, it really leads to a lot of a lot of myths and especially related to crime cases, but oh, for sure. persons as well, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So not everybody is being swept up by like violent sex traffickers. Exactly. <laughs> and not, that's not to say that doesn't happen because it definitely sure. does. But yeah. It's such a small percentage of the missing persons cases, um, you know, in Canada that it's just mostly like someone's at a um, mission center and they didn't return in time for their curfew or, 
um, a teenager's at their boyfriend's house and just didn't tell their mom. And there's nothing wrong with that. Like these cases are, you know, they'll still need to be reported, but yeah, they're definitely not maybe as exciting as maybe we've thought, uh-huh. <laughs> which is not, not a bad thing. No, that's, I think across our, our work, right. That's probably, <laughs> we don't want that excitement. Um, no, I don't. I'm happy that, that that excitement is not there. It's a really good sign. But <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a myth that exists out there for sure. So you must, like, there must be a, a lot on runaways too, I would imagine. Runaways are a huge problem, yeah. We're finding that mostly runaways, um, it's mostly to do with the, the group home policy or, um, you know, miscommunication with families or emotional and stressful episodes. So they get stressed and then they run away to escape the situation or they get an argument with mom, dad, brother, sister, boyfriend, mm-hmm. girlfriend. And they're like, I'm storming off and need to, to get out of this situation. And then for group homes, it's again, related to curfew where they have to be back at a certain time, but don't end up coming back at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so again, not as exciting, but I understand why that policy exists for group homes. And I, I'm glad that the families are reporting the, the youth is missing at that time. <clears throat> but yeah, pretty much all of the all of the youth cases and a large majority of uh, adult cases are classified as running away. So it's a huge issue. <laughs> yeah, and I think that a lot of people would probably be surprised to hear that, right? Like Yeah. Yeah. But it's not um running away like Again, as dramatic as it seems in the movies where they're <laughs> running through the woods and tripping over logs and, you know, hitchhiking across the country. I mean, a lot of people are just found within the city at a different location when where they were thought or they are, like I said, not returning for curfew or they just like need a second to breathe when it's an emotionally charged or stressful situation. Yeah. So, yeah. And probably like dumb kid stuff too, right? Oh, always, yeah, definitely. I mean, we were all teenagers at one point. I'm sure that, you know, yeah, there's definitely situations where I probably should have been reported as missing as a teenager. (laughs) If anybody's listening to this, we know where Lorna is. She's okay. Yeah, It's just about communication, and I think that technology helps with that nowadays, Uh where people can, you know, shoot a text to their friend or their mom or their dad, or they're posting on social media so we can see their whereabouts. Um, yeah. And so that will probably attenuate some of the issues with, with runaways for youth specifically. Yeah. And that was another thing I was going to ask. Um, I, I asked about the dumb kid thing because my, <laughs> my dad was a little boy. He ran away um, because he got in a fight with my grandparents about something, but he was like little, little. And so uh, it was Easter and he took his Easter basket with him and went and hid, <laughs> he went and hid in a bush in the park for a little, little while because Aww. he was, he was sounds, mad. It sounds cute. Yeah. Well, I don't think my dad's ever going to listen to this. Um, just in case dad, um, you're famous now on the internet. Yeah. Um, what was I? Oh, shoot. I got, I just lost my train of thought completely. What was I going to ask you about before I had to tell the dumb story about my dad? Hmm. We were talking about social media. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, I was wondering like how, how the social media and like everybody has a GPS on them now. Mm-hmm. Like, does that, has that come up at all in your research? Like it, it oh, seems yeah, sure. technologically it's way yeah. easier to find yeah. people. Well, that's it, right? Social media, you can pretty much quote-unquote solve a missing person's case sometimes from your desk right like if you just check on 
Facebook, check on Instagram, you know, ping a cell phone location and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, you can see where the person is, right? And even yeah. for, like, the runaway cases that happen repeatedly, a lot of officers have developed personal connections with these youth and can just shoot them a text and be like, hey, <laughs> we got a report, <laughs> where are you? What uh-huh. you up to? Um, and, you know, that's that's really important, right? Um, for social media, <clears throat> I actually just finished uh, a study on using Twitter for police investigations for missing persons. Really? It was super, super interesting. It's in press. Um, and we found that um, using images, um, using hashtags, not using links, and keeping a smaller character count really helped with driving up public engagement, which, you know, leads to more outreach and participation in these cases. And so what officers are saying is, you know, the more eyes, the better. Yeah. Uh, on social media, if we put out, let's say, a missing person um, tweet about how a person's going missing, here's what they look like, um, look out for them. Uh-huh. You know, you're, you're getting more people actively participating in these investigations than you would say if you just kept it, you know, offline, which is extremely important. <clears throat> also, there can be downfalls with that, like false leads and yeah. too much information. But, you know, it's always helpful. I always advocate for people helping out where and when they can. Yeah. And, you know, the Missing Persons Act in Ontario specifically kind of helps with giving officers more authority and more um, more availability to look at social media and get cell phone pings and stuff. So long answer to say <laughs> that social media and technology, definitely it's helping with missing persons work and it always will for yeah. sure. That's interesting yeah. too, that, I mean, just a short description, a hashtag and a picture, but not a link. Yeah. So the link, what we're finding is, you know, specific to Twitter, um, people just are scrolling, 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 and we call them the 20 seconders. They want quick information. They want to read it within 20 seconds and understand what that information says, what they need from me and what, you know, it's all about, etc. And if you include a link, people don't typically follow through on that. Instead, they'll, you know, like and, and share on Twitter, but they won't follow to an external website. So, hmm. you know, that has ramifications because police services often include that link with more information on the missing person. So, yeah, yeah I'm not sure what that will look like in the future, but definitely using using Twitter was found to be very effective for these investigations. Mm-hmm. And they also use things like uh, Facebook as well and Instagram. So the more eyes, like I said, the better for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I think that any law enforcement who might listen to this would probably agree, right? It's better to have more data than or more leads, information, yeah, information than not enough. (laughs) Yeah, well, exactly, right? And that's definitely an issue that when I've been speaking with officers, they brought up is the lack of information or a lack of leads. Like they've brought up how even uh, families and friends cannot give enough information or give inaccurate information to. Mm kind of um yeah they're kind of closed off to officers and that can really again negatively impact a a missing person's case because the more information the officer has the more leads they can follow the more people they can contact the more Mm -hmm. even places they can visit to see if the person is there so Mm -hmm. more information is always the better Hmm. the better case for sure for sure um so at this point in your career have you been able to start teaching yet well um Teaching loosely, I, I've done tutorials, so I would say no, not even close, but um, it's definitely something I'm looking forward to in my future. That's really where 
you know, obviously doing all this work, I'm hoping that it'll take me to. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but we'll see. I have to be flexible, right? Yeah. <laughs> see how it goes. <laughs> yeah. As you know, as we all know on the untenure tracks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think everybody who has tenure <laughs> would agree too. Yeah. I mean, I never expected to end up in northeastern Pennsylvania for sure. Yeah, you gotta be flexible, and I'm I'm totally willing to be. I'm I'm up for whatever, wherever, so long mm-hmm. as I can get my foot in the door, get some experience, mm-hmm. develop my skills and stuff. Yeah. So I'm hopeful. I'm still very very optimistic, but like I said, I have to stay open <laughs> to other ideas. <laughs> I like. <laughs> Hmm? I like right. the I like the implication like you're still very very optimistic implies that one day you won't be. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was gonna say. I'm hoping the academy doesn't beat it, beat it out of me. <laughs> oh, um, I've definitely talked to like my older colleagues and they're like. Uh, yeah, I'm not optimistic anymore. I need to explore different roads. I'm looking for other jobs, blah, blah, blah. And I'm hoping that I'm not going to be like that in a few years, but we'll yeah. see, I guess. So I, I, what I would tell you is to like internalize now that institutions can't care about you. Amen. Yeah. I, it took me way too long to, to learn that. Um, and I wish that I would have learned that a long time ago. Yeah, honestly, I'm totally up for for anyone listening to this, giving me advice, you know, direction, <laughs> some helpful tips so I don't make mistakes at some point oh, that can be avoided, for sure. Rest in peace, your mentions. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I'm, I'm like a sponge right now. I'm People listening to this that are like further along in their career are probably like, oh, she's such a naive rookie. But at the same time, <laughs> I have to learn as much as I can and take in all this knowledge because you folks really have gone through it, you know, at different levels than I have. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'll take any advice, literally any advice. I, I'm, I'm totally all ears for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think at this point, if my friend Joan hasn't messaged you by this time and like listening to this interview, I will probably tell her to... <laughs> Um, so as far as like future potential teaching goes, is this, is the missing persons research something that you, you would like to bring into the classroom? Like you, can you envision like a class centered on this type of stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. Just like, so my work focuses in, you know, within the criminal justice system related to policing. And so I kind of cross over in two domains. I cross over into evidence-based policing and then I cross into, um, so that's criminology and then Mm -hmm. sociology as well. Mm -hmm. Um, my PhD is in sociology itself. So a lot of my work has been centered around sociological theories, but I'm dabbling obviously in both. It's super important. Mm -hmm. Um, but a lot of the times, When it comes to conversations surrounding, you know, the criminal justice system and sociology, we forget to look at missing persons work. And something that, you know, a lot of people don't know is it's not illegal to go missing. It's not a crime to go missing. And so within criminology, people have kind of, I I guess, debated about the idea of how missing persons work fits into it. But we have to remember, it's still a police duty. It's still police work. And so... Um, when I'm looking at these cases, I'm having issues <laughs> fitting into to the criminal justice literature and criminology literature, but um, I can 110% see myself creating a course on missing persons because it dabbles into so many different areas. Yeah. Even, you know, such as based on health and health literature, because a lot of people go missing from institutional locations like hospitals yeah. and mental health units, and there's a lot of overlap between mental illnesses, addictions, and disabilities among missing persons yeah. cases. And so it's so interdisciplinary, and it affects so many different spheres. Yeah. And I think that it does 
it does d- deserve some more like specialized focus. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we've developed policing courses and we've developed, you know, sex work courses and human trafficking courses and um, serial killer courses at, at my university. So why can't we develop something related to missing persons? It's super important, especially that now we're acknowledging that it's a large social issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's been a lot of media attention, like I said, lately to these types of cases. So, Again, long answer to say absolutely. I would love it. I think it's definitely necessary. I think it's very deserved, and I think that it will bring light to, like I said, a lot of different areas that we haven't thought about before. <clears throat> yeah. I I used to be a big theory nerd before I had to become a generalist for teaching purposes. But <laughs> You're right, it, yep. <laughs> but it seems like, uh, like the early exits from adolescence stuff would fit in. Yeah, yeah. I actually was starting to look at that this morning before our talk. So, um I think that that's one of the, again another issue I have with current literature on missing persons is there's not a lot of theory work in it. Yeah. It's a lot of exploratory stuff. Yeah. Um, and so there's like I said, there's so much overlap across so many different yeah. areas. Yeah. So just like thinking out loud, I think the first thing you would have to be trying to differentiate between adults who go missing and and adolescents who go missing because like with the adolescent side, there's all the status offense stuff and mm-hmm. and like a whole different type of power dynamic. Whereas Absolutely. With the... And for adults, you know, like I said, it's not a crime to go missing. And so yeah. the handling of cases, being a youth alone puts a person more at risk yeah. on like a risk assessment chart than being an adult. And so, yeah, yeah there's definitely like there's definitely different ways to handle cases related to youth. And I think that really good theories connecting that would be helpful. <clears throat> and then just and then trying to differentiate between people who willingly go missing, like an adult who like the choice yeah yeah yep who is just like running away from a bad marriage or like you said maybe it's a mental health or a substance use thing but it's still like they still have some agency and just decide that they're gonna go or they're um whatever substance um they're having issues with is pushing them away yeah versus people who are like actually criminally taken like yeah like parental abduction cases absolutely and that brings to light like the conversations around like typologies of missing persons cases i think that that, that's like really vital work that's actually coming out of um cancer right now another a couple of other colleagues are working on that work and it's really important because the more we understand these different classifications the better we can understand um what to do with them because Uh every officer i've talked to has, has said there's two issues um, different services are doing different things, and then the second one is every everything's case by case because yeah. every di- different case presents a different level of risk and different situations, different individual level mechanisms influencing it, and so <laughs> that's like such a huge challenge when it comes to yeah what what, do, what are the appropriate police responses here? How do we handle this when it's you know every different case is different, right? Yeah, it'd be interesting to know too, like which cases capture public interest and why. Like, yeah. Be, like I, I assume that it's probably all, like with most victimization stuff, like the young, pretty white girl probably gets the most attention with this, yeah. this stuff. But like, so we, even within that, bit, I would wonder. Like, preliminary research, we found that it's females get the most attention. People that have concerns over, like that, it's noted that there's concerns over well-being, so related to health and, um. And then we also find that the younger folks get more attention, but mm-hmm. uh, we found no no information on um, a person's race identifying a person um, as what did we find? So race and 
any types of physical characteristics like clothing, glasses, tattoos, beards, all that jazz. None of that generated more more public interest. But mm-hmm. so currently, it's just um, women and younger folks that are kind of driving public interest. But there's, like I said, there's no research on this stuff that's really yeah. well developed. It's there's a couple of studies here and there, and they're trickling in, but. There's no evidence base, so we can't say conclusively. Yeah. But yeah, I definitely agree. It'd be really interesting to see which cases drive up public interest. Yeah. And then, I, I'm sorry if I feel like I'm just like adding on research questions for you. I'm, I'm really <laughs> I'm making notes here. I'm, not, I'm really not intending to to make your work harder. I'm just thinking out loud. <laughs> but like, it, it would be interesting too to think about like how the system interacts with the elderly who go missing like mm-hmm. i mean here they call it silver alerts right yes. somebody okay yeah. so um i'm just gonna assume everybody listening knows what that means but like i, I think that those sometimes generate media coverage too but it's probably it varies works. and yeah i don't know <laughs> yeah well the least amount of cases that were reported on twitter as missing persons were elderly folks so um those over 65 didn't have as many reports on Twitter. So uh-huh. I'm wondering if it's all to do with like media sensationalization and stuff. I'm not Maybe. sure, but there are, um, I do recommend people checking out my colleague Larissa. She's doing a lot of work in relation to missing elderly folks and, um, the implications of that for, um, you know, with the changing age structure of Canada, mm-hmm. she's really looking at how that's going to, um, you know, impact policies and procedures for police work too. So again, there's a couple of scholars looking at it, but it's mm-hmm. just, it's all underway. It's all in progress and we don't really know anything at this stage, which is problematic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and just leads to like dummies like me speculating. <laughs> no, but it's good. This is, no, I love it. I love talking to people about this stuff because <laughs> nine times out of 10 people outside of the work are going to think about things that, you know, I wouldn't or someone else wouldn't because we're in our little bubble and, thinking about what we think about, but everyone's, you know, perceptions are different. So it's awesome. Yeah. 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 And I think you're right that it intersects with so many different things. It does. Yeah. I could see it as a standalone class that allows you to like dip in and out of every other class, or I Mm -hmm. could see it as like every class just has to have a unit on this stuff. Right. Like I'm teaching juvenile delinquency this semester. And like, when we talk about gangs, like obviously, there are kids in there who have run away um Absolutely. who yeah who may or may not have been reported missing right mm-hmm. um but that's obviously like another level um if you're thinking yeah. about like petty stuff that the cops might bust them for um and like prosecutors may be trying to pile on charges that that yeah. sort of running away slash truancy or whatever like it seems like a very easy get yeah, and you brought up two, like, really important points. Like, one, people don't, like, if people go missing, sometimes they just don't want to be found, Yeah. right? They're going missing intentionally. Maybe they're running away from something mm-hmm. that, you know, is bad or negative or is impacting them, and they're trying to escape that. And Or maybe they're mm-hmm. running away from, like, criminal charges. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, you know, just adding layers, adding nuances to these cases, and it just... It's hard because obviously we want to be like, hey, here's some standardized ways to track, like, yeah. to tackle these, but we can't do that. So all we can offer is maybe standardized mm-hmm. components or some, you know, healthy recommendations. It's just, mm-hmm. 
but it's just so complex. It's so complicated. There's so many factors. There's so many areas this touches on that um, mm-hmm. it's 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 just really challenging to focus on one specific area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it just reminded me of a like a very old case um, from like the 1920s, I think. Um, I so I've been doing like a lot of research on crime history. So I'm mm-hmm. I'm like steeped in early 20th century useless oh, stories <laughs> that people have. But there was this this Hollywood producer who um, he was murdered in his in his home like under very mysterious circumstances. His name was William Desmond Taylor, um, and in the investigation into his murder, they found out that he had um, a family in the northeastern United States that he had run away from. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, he had yeah. a, a wife and kids that just one day. He just got up and nobody knows why. He just left. He just pieced out and um, resurfaced like 10 years later as this Hollywood guy. Um, and so his his former wife saw his picture in the paper and was, I think, like pretty dumbstruck. <laughs> that, yeah. Um, <laughs> and they like they eventually like re- like I think he reconnected with her through maybe his brother-in-law or somebody. Um, and probably like made some payments on the DL, but, um, he, I mean, it's, it's interesting because he was, he was picked by like old Hollywood guard to act as like the, the face of the industry. Um, Hollywood is, was taking a lot of criticism at the time. And so they picked what they thought was the most clean cut guy <laughs> to defend them. And then, from, here we are. And, then <laughs> and then he gets, he gets murdered on, in like mysterious circumstances and has this whole secret family. And so like the conservative moral right in the United States just jumped all over that. Oh man, I bet. Yeah. That's <laughs> like, that's exactly it. Right. It's not, it's not a crime for him to do that. Like I could literally close, close my laptop right now, get off this <laughs> podcast with you and run and, and just go wherever I want. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, I, I'm, I'm allowed to do that. Uh-huh. Am I going to do that? No. <laughs> I and that's the problem, right? So I could, you know, he can just literally leave uh-huh. his family and go start a new life. Yeah. Um, you know, there are other obviously factors and responsibilities that, oh, should, yeah. that could tie him to that. And, uh-huh. and he could be held accountable for it, but oh, the, yeah. the specific act of going missing, he's, he was allowed to do that. And he still yeah. is, right? Anyone is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and like the laws are different today too, right? In terms of child support and things like that. So of course, like family court would reel him right back (laughs) in. (laughs) Yeah. He's not, he's not getting away to start a new life that easy, but yeah. yeah, And that's like, that's like, I mentioned that in classes too. And and so I, I will, uh, loan the joke to you too. I mean, you kind of made it already, but like, And if you ever teach juvenile delinquency or like social adolescence or something, like obviously running away as a status offense, but for you and me, it's not. And then there's an opportunity to stand there in front of the students and pretend to like daydream. <laughs> like I could leave, I could leave you all here right now. <laughs> what are you going to do? About it? What are you going to do? You can't. <laughs> You're gonna call public I've, safety. I've definitely thought about it. Like, there's been times where like I'm just pressed and super stressed, and they're like, "I could just leave. Like, I'm just gonna leave." But you know, yeah, it's it's true. And you you bring up an important point. Like, I wonder for for you, have you found like even in this conversation an overlap between your juvenile delinquency course and missing persons? Yeah, so I think that it ties in. Like I said, the early exits hypothesis, I think, is super cool. It's one of my favorite um, ideas in the life course literature. Um, mm-hmm. I think it ties in a lot to general strain theory, um, yes. and like all this, yeah. all the stress and coping stuff, right? Um, just instead of like you experience a stressor and you experience all of the, 
all the negative emotions and the anger and depression and stuff that comes with it. But instead of choosing to cope with it in a directly antisocial way, you cope with it by just checking out. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's like problem focused coping versus emotion yeah. focused coping. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, I mean, I, I mean, that would be like a, a reactionary type of anomie that's, you know, all all of that type of literature would call people like that a retreatist, I guess, in a way. Yeah, I've thought of that too. Yeah, because um, it, it, again, it's not it's not active, and it's not. I mean, just like with some of the substance use stuff, right? Like, it's not illegal to be an alcoholic. You right. Know, it's illegal to do different things while you're heavily under the influence, and depending on but where you are, self. yeah. If you wanted to stay in the privacy of your own home and get blitzed every night, you're. <laughs> more power to you <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> uh but it, it seems like it falls into that same type of stuff right um mm-hmm. but then where it gets really interesting is like is the added twist of while there is a minority of cases that are are violent um or have like that insidious nature to them then what differentiates like the risk there from mm-hmm. that and how systems respond to that and and all of that you know what i mean oh absolutely yeah and that's something i've kind of racked my brain around is like in my research it's, it's good that i'm studying you know across the board every single case but i think that moving forward i really want to look at those outliers because they will tell us a lot more about what's happening yeah. than let's say the normal cases quote-unquote normal cases uh-huh. um those those violent cases like why did they happen what was the process behind that what mechanisms are influencing it um and that's not to say that there's not, you know, important research. It's, it's not important to look at, you know, runaways because, you know, it is a phenomenon in and of itself. It's still a process that's happening. Yeah. But I think the outliers might tell me a little bit more about missing persons than, let's say, the normal cases. Does that make sense? Oh, for sure. Um, because you have potentially, like, a bigger window of time to work with, right? So yeah, uh, the the cases from... I should have looked them up before I talked to you because I suspected I'd bring them up today. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) the cases from someone knows something that he covered. I mean, those have decades of time of um, not just the families trying to figure stuff out and the families trying to find some kind of closure, even though closure doesn't really exist. Um, Closure in the sense of just wanting, like accepting that um, they're their kids are pro- and siblings are probably dead, but just wanting mm-hmm. to know like specifics behind it. So there's some kind of piece that way. Um, but then also I think time helps that helps the research too, because you can see how the case bounces from uh, like officer to officer. Right. Oh yeah. And, and like, see what, what the implications of that are. Yeah. Sure. New generations of law enforcement coming through the ranks and who are handed like a stack of cold cases to investigate. And one just happens to catch their imagination, and that mm-hmm. could that could lead to a whole breakthrough, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and that's again when I've been talking to officers, um, they really bring up how looking revisiting old cases that are cold, yeah, uh, is extremely important for several reasons. One of them being the quality, like bringing the quality back up to speed because we have different mandates, different protocols now. Yeah. And a second one, you know, getting a fresh set of eyes on there because there could be leads that, you know, maybe were passed over or maybe someone didn't think of. And um, the third thing being communicating with the family, right? Mm-hmm. Keeping in touch with them, even years, years and years later, is extremely important for the 
family to, you know, obviously get closure, but also to know that there's still work being done on that missing case specifically. Yeah. 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 I also think that there's possible, like, cool questions when you factor in, like, other aspects of the state. So I'm thinking, like, if somebody goes missing... I'm in, if I'm in Pennsylvania, right? So if, if somebody goes missing here, mm-hmm. but they are taken either to another state or they're taken into Canada, um, I think, like, studying how those agencies have to work together mm-hmm. to try to find what now is, like, really a needle in a haystack, potentially, um, yeah. I think is is super interesting, right? Because you have to deal with all of the political kind of territorial chest bumping <laughs> type of stuff, <laughs> chest thumping yeah. um, that would happen within the U.S. between states anyway, but then factoring in, like, two different countries. And I don't even know, like, how how that would work. <laughs> I don't either. Right? And that's a good point. Is like, how would that work across, across boundaries, like, across borders, right? Yeah. Um, when we even, like, and this is not a criticism of, like, any police services, but it's just, like, cross-agency collaboration has just been something that's challenged just because everything's done, you know, internal and within the service itself, never mind across different countries. So yeah. I don't I even mean, know what that would look like, honestly. Yeah, like... Would my would my tiny little township police have to contact the Pennsylvania State Police, and then do they contact the RCMP? Or <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think I don't think like my tiny little township municipality could <laughs> would, would call <laughs> wouldn't call yeah. the Mounties. Like, <laughs> I don't. I think they would be. I mean, I don't know that they would be, but I can imagine they would be pretty concerned. <laughs> I don't want to say well, yeah, scared, but flabbergasted. Policing are really, really prominent right now, and who would even be tasked with doing that? How would that work? Like, would it move jurisdictions at that point? Would it move? Yeah, yeah I don't know. That's a good. That's a good question. And, it, sure. and so it's probably something that would just end up, well, definitely being massively frustrating, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there there has to be precedent out there. I was going to say it could be similar to like what we're learning about how American healthcare works now with the coronavirus that nobody knows anything and nobody knows how to do anything. And yeah. these cases of people calling, thinking that they may be sick and then just getting trapped in like a, almost like an infinite loop on the telephone of like yeah. just being transferred yeah, from one so agency to the next. Yeah. Like I wonder if, if, and then like, and then that factors in like, a lot of the not the risk stuff but those categories or characteristics that would get people interested in the first place you know because yeah. obviously officers are are human and and make mistakes and have their own biases too and just because somebody says to go do something doesn't mean that they will and so then you have to yeah. factor in like police corruption there's like a billion <laughs> things to go with this <laughs> oh my gosh you know you really help with um <laughs> I'm sorry. That's <laughs> uh, no, great. I, I really appreciate it. And you know, you're right. Like, there is, you know, obviously police for human, but you know, one of the things I really advocate for and, and speak highly of is all the, the police work that's being done right now to, you know, bring up the quality of missing persons, all yeah. the conferences and the calls and you know, the units and integrated units and working groups are, you know, currently happening across Canada for missing persons work is really, Mm -hmm. 
for lack of a better word, inspiring. It's really good to see all these passionate people coming together to try and do better um, and make things better for other people in the, their communities, right? Mm-hmm. So things that I would I would say um, in my experience are definitely getting better. We're, we're getting good at, you know, talking <laughs> to each other and, and communicating and having phone calls and having meetups and stuff. And yeah. um, again, I think research will help with that too because let's say my little service here in Ontario – I'm not sure that they're going to pick up the phone and go talk to someone in a little a little town in, in, in BC, but that doesn't mean that I can't, you know, I, I'm talking to both those those services so I can generate research on that and help with, with bridging that gap. And that's really my, my main interest here is kind of helping with cross-agency collaboration. And so, yeah, I advocate for them. They're doing great work. They're, they're really, you know, it's a really passionate group of people that are involved in this. Um, the people that, you know, are the officers that are there's corruption or they're not following protocols you know they're very 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 they're the minor they're mm-hmm. not the majority so um pretty much everyone that i've interacted with um are extremely passionate and driven people in their work so i applaud them for that <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah i know that's that's really cool that you're that you're trying to build this this cross-agency type yeah. of work that's that's really important and i think like just like evidence-based stuff is definitely the future of our work um in the community i think that this cross collaboration is also super important too absolutely because what one service is doing and is working for them could help another service or it could be tested in another service and it could really you know just talking to each other it could even reduce some of the issues with resources because maybe you don't need to start a whole new unit because there's a unit going on, on over here that's doing great work that you could kind of jump in on. Mm-hmm. So I think that I can definitely attenuate some of the issues with missing persons work. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, like I said, there's a lot of resource cuts in policing. And so me doing this research, they don't need new resources or new people to, to talk to, to each other and start all this stuff. Um, cause I, I hope to do it for them. So, mm-hmm. um, I'm hoping it helps <laughs> of course. Oh, I'm sure it will. Um, Fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're all rooting for you. Um, Thank you. Awesome. <laughs> so I have, I have one last question for you, and I'll let you get to all of your work. <laughs> all the work you just gave me. Yes, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> if you want me to be on your dissertation committee, <laughs> I will let you know for sure. <laughs> um, that wasn't the question, though. Uh, <laughs> um, so we we talked a lot today about. Um, how social media can draw attention to cases. So I, I'm just wondering, in, in the work that you've been able to do so far, has there been one case that has really stood out to you that we should, or that you think we should try to amplify now? And if there's not, that's totally okay too. What do you, when you say amplify, like you mean like pay attention to, or yeah, I mean just using like my resource on as like this podcast right is there is there any missing person case that you are aware of that's active now that um we could draw attention to i think that um you know a lot of the cases that are the police are working on is really really within like it's internal mm-hmm. so i wouldn't say that there are any missing persons cases that i'd want to draw attention to but i'll take this this opportunity to kind of advocate for you know, looking at missing persons and, and, you know, even though it's underfunded, trying to use your resources and your passions and your skills and knowledge to look at this work and see what can be done. If anyone is interested in this, I will, like, obviously keep my DMs open. I'm always up for chatting about it. Um, I'm always up for learning from people. 
And even if it's not within my field, like anyone with different perspectives, I happily, you know, will hear them. It would be great um, to get some help with that as well. <laughs> and if there's any researchers doing this work, um, I'd love to connect with them too and see what they're up to and see what they're all about. Um, but yeah, there's not, like I said, a, a case that I would amplify, but there is a call out to people to look at this, you know, this matter and kind of pay attention to it and see what, what can be done with, with this topic. Awesome. Um, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thank you as well. I appreciate the opportunity. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come online, come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenure Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of Our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.